Well, good morning. Some of you may have been listening to that and said, the creative pastor. And you probably think, that's a made-up title, because it kind of is. We're kind of making it up on the fly as we go. Don't tell anybody. But we're having fun. I'm so honored and privileged to be able to share this morning and be able to um, share something that's been on my heart and something that Pastor Jerome actually sharing last week really inspired me. We'd gone to lunch the week before, and uh, I don't think it's, it's any secret. 2020 was pretty rough, right? 2020 was pretty hard. And I was kind of walking through something and navigating something with him, and, um, you know, it's always good to go to your, your pastor and your leader and someone that you trust to kind of advise you. And he was advising me a little bit, and uh, we started talking about what after Christmas looks like. You know, there's this weird in-between stage, and last week he did this amazing job of sharing kind of a perspective that we don't often think about. Where Christ was born, and we celebrate this amazing birth, this amazing story of the gospel coming to life, the Christ, son, Christ child being born unto the earth to come and walk as a man, to be incarnate, and to live life just as we do. That can feel like kind of the end until it picks up 30-some years later where we start to see Jesus' ministry and the way that he's touching lives, the way that he's interacting with people, you know, where the story actually, the gospel, picks up. Jesus starts to travel in the land and, and invite people to come and walk with him, not just physically, but spiritually. Will you follow me? And he teaches them a lot of stuff. Um, but that in-between section, before all of that happens, that was a tough time. Because I think each and every one of us could say, yeah, you know, I'm actually, I'm 30. I'm turning 30 soon. Uh, and I've, you know, I'm kind of getting to that point where Jesus' ministry started to kind of happen and start to take off. And he started to, you know, started to do stuff, recorded stuff. But I can tell you that 30 is enough years to know that there is hardship and suffering and growing and growing pains and beauty and things that make you so excited and happy. There are things that set my heart on fire and there are things that just absolutely crush me. And I have to believe that the incarnate son of God, Jesus walking on the earth, also experienced these same things. Jesus faced the trials of growing up he faced the temptations that we faced, discomfort, physical pain, misrepresentation. He suffered injustice. He suffered at the weight of his own mortality and eventually suffered death. And a death that I pray that none of us suffer. The most brutal form of death at that time. The hardest thing you could go through. And that was all because of, and all enabled because he came as a man. Last week, Pastor Jerome's main point was, because of Christ's incarnation, we can be confident that he hears us with sympathy and will provide us exactly what we need. And that's a good thing, right? As each of us walk in our lives, as we navigate things, we need grace. We need that mercy, and we need an understanding from someone who's gone through it. There's nothing worse than, you know, you're trying to explain your problem to somebody, and the person's like, I don't get the problem. That's not a problem at all. That's pretty hard to navigate through. But Christ came and walked in a world, suffered the same things, walked through the same things, dealt with the same things, and I think that's really beautiful. Because of Christ's incarnation, we can trust that he knows what we're going through and that we can actually be encouraged by the one who's overcome death itself. He knows and understands the pressures of suffering. As believers, we know that in this world we'll suffer. You're probably thinking, this is, isn't this the new year? Aren't we supposed to be excited? Aren't we supposed to be happy? Like, can't we cheer for like a, like, it's not 2020 anymore. It's going to be 2021. But I think in our hearts, we know that the years are kind of, you know, 
blending together a little bit. Christmas didn't really, it felt like Christmas this year, and actually, I got to celebrate probably the best Christmas I've had since I was a child, which is really saying something, because Christmas is an amazing time, and when you're a child, it's like the excitement of the season and so many things, and you get to see your family, and this year, God really blessed me and touched my heart very deeply, softened it to some stuff that was kind of boiling over for me, but it was good to experience something new and fresh in a year where nothing felt new or fresh. Everything had just rolled into the same over and over every day. And my prayer is that 2021, we're going to see some real change. We're going to see opportunity. I actually want to go back in my notes. My notes didn't sync up on the computer back here, so uh, I don't have any support back here. I don't really have anything going on, so you guys just have to look at my face. So I'm sorry. But I do want to celebrate something from 2020 that I think is absolutely incredible. And it's only enabled because of you guys. It's not, it wasn't just the staff. It wasn't just the people who are really active. It's everyone in this church on behalf of Radiant Christian Life. In 2020, I don't know if you guys know this, but we served over 5,500 meals. And that's a super conservative guess at how many meals we, we actually served. But we served probably well over, yeah. We're actually probably a little bit closer to 6,000, but I didn't know exactly, and I just didn't want to guess. 5,500 meals that were served on Dinners on Us every Friday throughout all of 2020. Because of you guys, we met a physical need, a real physical need, something that, you know, people, people need to eat to live. But we also met a spiritual need in each and every one of those interactions. That's 5,500 plus opportunities to present the gospel to people in our community. It's easy to think that 2020 was really bad, but when you have 5,500 opportunities to tell someone that Jesus loves them, I think that's a victory, right? That's like huge, yeah, that's amazing. And that's because our church is a church that says, you know what, 2020 is not gonna slow us down. All, of, all the restrictions that we have on our lives, all the challenges that we face right now, all of the moments that are, difficult for us, it's not going to slow us down at all. We're still going to give glory to God. We had an amazing year last year, and it's because because of our faithfulness, because God has shown us such a deep love that we can return that to our neighbors. So that's the kind of perspective shift that I want to kind of instill in us this morning. Pastor Jerome talked about the suffering of the Savior, and I want to talk this morning about how we suffer how we walk through our lives. As believers, we know that we will suffer. In John 16, 33, Jesus tells his disciples, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So I want you to know, we may not know why we suffer. We may not know how we're gonna move through it. But Jesus right there when he's explaining that to his disciples, proclaims that he has made a way. It's not making a way, he's made a way. He's overcome the world. That's good news, right? In the midst of suffering, knowing that the one that we put our faith in has overcome. So I wanna propose a thought to you because we're going to go into the book of Job this morning, and Job is pretty famous for being a guy that suffered pretty greatly. Not a great time for Job in the first, oh, 40 chapters of his book. But I want to propose this idea. It's not about whether or not we're going to struggle in life, but rather about how we handle the struggles that come our way. It's not about whether or not we're going to struggle, because we will but it's about how we handle handle those struggles. This is, for Christ followers, this is actually, this is a privilege for us to discover. We get to be aware of something greater working behind the veil of the universe that is making a way when we see no way. So this morning, we're gonna take a look at the story of Job And Job is uh, thought to be a part of the Hebrew wisdom literature, 
um, meaning it was passed down through the Israelites. Uh, it's thought to be as they were wandering in the desert uh, during the exodus from Egypt, but it's not actually known. The, a lot of the details surrounding Job are actually um, pretty mysterious, which has kind of piqued my interest all week, is kind of digging into it more and more, and it's like, wow, there's something really powerful about it. A pastor that I adore and love his preaching um, says that the best way to look at Job is because Job is a poem, you need to read it not literally, but literarily. So we need to take things and say, well, maybe that exact phrasing, maybe that's not exactly what the author is trying to explain to us. It's easier to compare it to something like Shakespeare's Macbeth than it is a fictional narrative. And I think that's actually how we can glean the most from it is by not saying, oh, right, how do we process some of the things happening here because they don't make sense to us? Because the truth of it is, it's not going to make sense to us. And I think that's where we're going to arrive. You, you have to imagine a stage play where, you know, your, your farmhand comes in and says, everyone has died. Everything is gone. Think of the melodrama of a stage play where they come in and the absolute worst thing happens because they're trying to tell us in the most basic terms I understand the human experience. I understand the narrative that you have to process and work through. I understand your suffering. And by the way, it doesn't get more melodramatic than someone walking in and saying, everything is gone and dead, until they do it three times and then a fourth time. And then the worst of it all is when the wife says, curse God and die. That's pretty melodramatic. Because of the nature of Job, it's kind of impossible to cover the whole depth of it in just a few minutes, let alone over several weeks. But I think it's worth diving into just to glean a little bit of a perspective shift for us. And I encourage each of you, jump into it this week. There's so much depth to it. There's so much happening and so much that we can take from it. And Job is often referenced as a story about the problem of evil especially from a secular perspective. People would like to take that story and cut it apart to use it as a way to disprove God's love for us. But that's a really flawed way of looking at it because it's not a solution for the problem of evil at all. It's actually a look behind the veil to see the inner workings of God and heaven himself. Just a glimpse, just a small sliver but that's enough to change everything. The real reason that we should study and read Job is that it's a reminder of God's sovereignty. Over each of our lives, and more importantly, it reveals the nature of his heart. I don't know if you guys think about this, but the Old Testament, so much of its application to our lives, so much of why it matters to us is because it's always unfolding and revealing the heart of God, his plan for it, for all of his people, for the coming of Christ. It reveals that he loves us so deeply that he will do anything to pursue each of us. So in Job 1, if you guys want to open your Bibles, this is where I would have had a slide. Job 1, we're just going to read this uh, intro real fast. The, the introduction and the final part of Job is fascinating. It's crazy the things that Job and God are talking about back and forth. It's like, wow, to be in the courtroom with God and be able to say, God, I trust you. Okay, I trust you. Yeah, thank you for making that point. I trust you. Uh, that would give you a pretty solid faith, I think. Um, but Job finds, finds himself in some pretty um, difficult circumstances, to say the least. So we'll start reading at Job 1. We'll read 1 through 5 and then uh, 6 through 12. In the land of Uz, there lived a man. Oh, by the way, uh, the land of Uz, there's, there's not really uh, an actual place known to be called this. It's actually just kind of a place that they're passing down through the story. It's kind of like an oral tradition kind of thing where they're kind of taking this idea and they're saying, 
this is, this is a place that you need to imagine and a person you need to imagine in it. But anyways, in this land there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. One day the angels came to present themselves to the Lord, so we're jumping up to heaven. We're in the throne room of God. The angels came to present themselves. You might see a little inscription there for the angels, the sons of God, came to present themselves, and Satan, or you might have another little note there, uh, Satan, it probably says either the accuser or the, that who advocates against the Hebrew word there, Satan, is actually really important because although for us we can apply this person that we would call Lucifer, this fallen angel, Satan, in this it's kind of being used in a more generic mode. It's being used in a way that is to literally say that who accuses against. That Hebrew word Satan is actually only used one other time in the Old Testament. And it's also in the same way, it's in Zechariah, it's used in the same way in a, in a scene that's depicting a courtroom. And the Satan comes to accuse someone against God. So if I say Satan or Satan, just want you to know, we're all on the same page here. So this, the Satan, Satan, also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. That's a long way of saying none of your business. But then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Satan replied, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flock and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Just want to back up a second in verse 10. It says, have you not put a hedge around him? This is the beginning of that Christianese phrase, a hedge of protection that we've all heard and probably have to process a little bit. Like, if there was something that was going to protect me, would I choose a bush, a tall bush at that? A wall of protection is maybe what we should update it to, but, you know, we use these phrases and then they just kind of churn out over and over and over again. So the hedge of protection, I hope you will always think of a tall bush around you when you pray for a hedge of protection. Um, if, if that, my job is done, I think that's great. Um, but Satan is challenging God here. He says, Job, Job fears you for nothing. Job loves you because you've given him everything. Everything one could ever want, need, desire. You've given him that. Strike him down and watch what will happen. It's as if Satan, the Satan, has come to accuse Job and says, take this bet. If you take everything from him, he's going to turn around real quick. But Lord, in his infinite wisdom, says to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. So then Satan goes out from the presence of the Lord. So here we have a scene in which the accuser comes to the throne room and claims that Job only loves God because he has everything. Satan tries the bet, and God doesn't take it. But he does say, I'll watch by your power. See if you can strip him of his love of me. And it's not because God's unjust. So going back, verse 13, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby. Basically what happens here 
is one after another. As Job's family is all feasting away, at all of the whole family's together, and he's sitting in his house, and what happens is the servants come in one by one and tell him that he's lost everything. A servant comes in and says, the Sabaeans have attacked and made off with all of your animals that were grazing. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one that has escaped to tell. And while that one was still finishing his story, another messenger came and says, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans have formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one that escaped to tell you. And to really seal the deal, a final messenger comes in and says, your sons and daughters who were feasting and drinking at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. I think it's important to pause right there. Because what Job is asserting here is that God has given me everything, and now God has taken away everything. This is where this story can start to get really funky if you don't very carefully read it. It can get very difficult to understand why God would take everything from Job. But if you go back to that courtroom, God didn't take anything from Job. In fact, God protected Job. You might say, well, he didn't protect everyone else in the family. The Satan has taken everything from Job to prove this point. If I can take everything from him that has made him happy in this world, then surely he will curse you to your face. God didn't take anything, and actually he preserved Job's life. It says, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So, so far, Job is having a really, really bad day. Maybe the worst day you could imagine. You remember that song, because you're having a bad day? You're taking one down, you sing a sad song just to turn it around. Well, Job has shaved his head and tore off all of his clothes, and he's laying there naked, singing a sad song just to turn it around. We go back to the courtroom, to this really interesting interaction between the accuser and God. Satan walks in, and the Lord says, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? You're familiar with him, right? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. This, I think, really ticks Satan off. Because he says, skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. And God does not do that. He says, very well. He is in your hands, but you must spare his life. You cannot take his life itself. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself as he sat in the ashes. This is when his wife comes in. She only has one line in the whole story. Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job replies, you are talking like a fool. Shall we accept good from God but not trouble? 
Job is still stuck in this paradigm of thinking that God is the one that is putting him through this trouble. That God is the one that is afflicting him, taking everything from him. And on the backside of all this, we know that God is the one that is preserving him. But in the end, Job is just left here with pain and mourning. He's lost everything. His friends hear about his plight and they travel to see him. But upon seeing him in the distance, they hardly recognized him. So they sat with him for seven days in complete silence. How many of you guys have friends that would sit with you for seven days in complete silence? Because I want those friends. Those are good friends. I can't imagine the scene of watching someone that you love so dearly and traveling from a distant land to see them when you hear about their suffering and getting there and not even recognizing them. How many of you have sat in a moment where someone you love is hurting so deeply and you can't find the words to comfort them, to give them hope? Those are tough moments. Those are really hard, challenging. They can test our faith. So Job's friends, when they break the silence, they don't have really good advice. Hopefully we all have better advice than some of these friends because um, they're not so uplifting sometimes. In chapter 4 is when they begin this debate with Job, where they start to challenge him, say, well, you know, you had to have done something, right? Something. Something along the way. They say, consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God, they perish. At the blast of his anger, they are no more. So his friends show up in his mourning and say, well, you kind of are probably getting what you deserve, right? You did something along the way. What this breaks down to, actually, is probably some really bad theology on their part. Because they have good intentions. They want to help Job solve this. They want to comfort him, but they also want to get to the root of what's going on. What they've developed is a theology of transaction. When the praises go up, the blessings come down. Chance the rapper. But that's not necessarily how it always works, right? I don't get to say, God, I love you. Where are my riches? Where's my fame? Where's my fortune? Where's everything that I could ever want? Where's my peace? We don't get that. That's hard. That could be a tough pill to swallow. But it's not, it's also not the same on the other side. It's not that evil always sow and reap evil. Sometimes it takes a long time for things to catch up. Sometimes it takes a long time and we don't see, you know, that person is doing this thing that they should not be doing, but not suffering any consequences. God, why do I struggle and they don't? This theology of a transactional faith of I do this, you do that. That's not how God works. And thank goodness, because we wouldn't survive. Job's friends say that, well, surely you've been unfaithful. Surely your children were unfaithful. And it does reference his children. His children did drink a lot. They liked to party. They didn't spend a lot of time with God. They didn't have a lot of offerings. Job would actually prepare offerings for them because he felt like he needed to intervene for them and their lives several times. One of his friends ends up challenging and saying, well, maybe you're just not in right belief. Maybe you just don't understand God, and this is why he's testing you. 
This is why he's taken things from you. These friends are trying in good faith, but they lack an understanding that suffering will come. And we might not always know why. But why we suffer isn't the point of this book. It's not really the point of our faith. I've met with so many young men in my time in ministry who just want to know why. Why is it like this? Why does life hurt so bad? Why can't I just get ahead? And I don't know. We might not ever know. But I promise that's okay. They spend 20 some odd chapters arguing back and forth. And Job makes some great points. He tries to stand up and say, no, I believe that God loves me. I believe that God is good. But they slowly break him down. They slowly begin to make him doubt himself. So Job arrives at this point at chapter 30. I know it's a big flip. You feel like I've probably skipped a lot, but there's no way we can get through all of those arguments. I don't think anyone would want to go through all of those arguments. Job says, I cry out to you, God. This is in Job's moment of weakness. He begins to accuse God. He says, I cry out to you, God. And that's verse 20, verse, uh, 20 and 21 in chapter 30. God, but you do not answer me. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. So Job's final defense is, maybe, maybe you're not so good, God. Maybe you don't really love me. Maybe his mind even goes to, God, maybe you're not even there. That's a pretty relatable spot, right? In suffering, to start questioning. A few chapters earlier, there's this young man who's been waiting and waiting and listening to 24 chapters of these guys bickering and blaming and making cases and false pretenses, and coming up with explanations of why Job would suffer. His name is Elihu, and Elihu has a really special role in this story, because what I think is he primes the pump of faith in Job. He reminds Job, God is good. God loves you. God is still present. He stands in the gap for Job's faith just as so many of us do for our friends and so many of our friends have done for us in times of trouble. They describe Elihu as young in years but with a full and deep love of God. He says to Job, but I tell you, in this you are not right for God is greater than any mortal why do you complain to him that he responds to no one's words? For God does speak, now in one way and then in another. But many will not perceive it. In that moment, I'm sure he felt like, no, are you guys listening to yourselves? Are you listening to the accusations you're making against this friend and his suffering? He is stripped Naked, laying in ashes of everything that he's ever loved and known. But in those moments, I think something turns in Job's heart that he begins to recognize the error of his ways, the sickness that he's had, and his heart that's begin to build up through these doubts. So beginning in chapter 38, it begins this wild journey for Job. 
God takes him on a journey through time and space. And he asks Job to recognize his authority in all things in the universe. In 38, verses 4 and 5, he says to Job, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, if you understand, who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. This is God poking a little bit of fun at Job. After they've gone back and forth now, he's saying, If you know me so well, then you must know the secrets of all of the universe its creation, how it's been laid out, every plan for every life that's ever existed. You must know. Surely you know. Tell me. God intensely questions Job. He says, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. So Job does answer him. With a turn of heart, he says, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Job repents and says, God, you are right. You've laid forth everything. And in my limited sight, I didn't see what you were doing and your heart for me. Job does speak again. And he says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. We're going to connect this to Pastor Jerome's sermon last week, but I want to just make this one point, that Satan wanted God to make Job suffer because he believed that Job would stop trusting God and that it would fracture, fracture the relationship that they had. He, the Satan wanted, um, in Job's mind, for God's heart to be perverted, that Job would actually believe that God didn't have blessings for Job and that God didn't love him. Life isn't about whether or not we're going to struggle. Our faith isn't about whether or not we're going to struggle, because we will, but rather about how we handle the struggles that come our way. Because I truly believe and know in my heart that when we trust Christ through our struggles, they begin to not necessarily look like the struggles we thought they once were. We find grace, we find mercy, and the ability to go back to God and say, I was wrong, Lord, restore me. And most importantly, we find victory. We find a true sense of victory because of the cross. Now Job's story is a small sliver of a metaphor or a literal or a fiction narrative. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if Job is real or not. I don't understand the mysteries of the universe. But I know I have to trust God. Last week we read in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. This is a scripture that is establishing Christ as the Son of God, imploring for us to trust him with our lives. 
It says, therefore, since we have such a great high priest, which by the way, last week Pastor Jerome explained how Christ is greater than all of these men of faith. He's better than Aaron and Moses. He's better than any of the kings. He's better than anything you've ever known, any prophet. Since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet, he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne with grace and confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We find grace in our time of need when we go boldly to the throne Christ suffered the same things that we did. You could actually take the story of Job and you could apply it to what happened to Christ. You know, he came as a man and he walked this earth. He had an amazing ministry. He performed miracles. He established himself as the son of God, without a doubt, the Messiah walking among men. And then the evil in the hearts of men, perhaps even a spirit of accusation and an adversary, came over hearts and said, we don't want this guy. We wanted a warlord king We wanted a high priest that would follow our rules. We wanted something other than what we're getting. (laughs) And they took everything from him. But in trying to take everything from him, he gained everything. A triumph over death and a restoration of God's people back to the Father himself so that we can go boldly to the throne room and say, God, I need you in these moments because I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your protection. Something more than a bush, please. Concrete wall. Or maybe just your touch. Just an anointing of your presence. In just a moment. When we trust Christ through our struggles, we find his grace and his mercy, his victory, and we find his empathy for walking through our struggles. It's amazing that Christ walked this earth because he didn't have to. He came to be among men, to walk with us, so that there would be triumph. And that's something worth celebrating, I think. That's amazing. And during his time in his incarnation, he actually had this moment with his believers, with his followers, the people that had just been with him, had witnessed Miracles. Really, you know, the people whose faith should be the biggest, the largest, the strongest, because they, like, well, Jesus just raised him from the dead. And he he did this thing, and we're going to do it this morning. He was sitting with them, and he had this interaction when he was with them for the last time, knowing that soon he would be gone, 
and that they would be sent on their mission. They'd be sent away. And that they would struggle. That it would be hard. But he did this because he wanted it to be a reminder. A reminder that although the current struggle, him facing death, was hard, it was because his perspective was of understanding that this isn't the final step. This isn't it. Jesus' death was the restoration of the people. And so every time we take a cup, every time we take the bread, it's to remind ourselves that he is good and he is victorious and that he loves us so deeply. So deeply that he would come and suffer. Something that human psychology actively avoids. And it wasn't easy. So he took his cup, and I'm going to ask each of you, take your cup. Because of restrictions, we do this little portable cup now, and it's kind of difficult to get open. If you peel the bottom layer, I'm sorry, you're never going to get your bread out. You're never going to get your cracker. It's just the way it is right now. I was reading this morning uh, just about communion and the scripture that I had pulled up was from Luke and it's funny because apparently Luke really liked uh, I don't know sitting around eating apparently that was a highlight of his time with Jesus is sitting at a table with various people eating talking receiving some wisdom seven times there's stories recorded with Luke talking about sitting at a table with Jesus. There must be some importance of doing that. If you don't have a cup, please raise your hand. We have a server who will bring one to you. And if you're gluten-free, we have that in the back as well. Um, we would love for you to be, be able to partake. We don't want you to be ill at all. So when they're sitting there at the table, they're together. They've finished their meal and Christ takes the bread, the loaf, he breaks it and he gives thanks. And he tells them that this is my body. It's been broken for you. His incarnate body broken for them. Do this and remembrance of me. Let's partake this together. In the same way, after he took the cup, and he says that this cup is the new covenant of my blood. His blood that's shed. It is poured out for you. The incarnate blood of Christ. Let's partake together. Will you pray with me? Father, we... are overwhelmed by your love for us. It's easy to forget that you walked as each of us walk and that you suffered as each of us suffer. But we are thankful the ways that you have revealed yourself to us. And we are thankful for your experience allowing us to go boldly to your throne 
and to trust boldly that you are God. Father, give us new perspective that our current suffering, the remnants of 2020, the struggles of 2021, and any year to come, Father, give us a perspective to know that none of it is greater than you, that none of it is beyond you, And because of your restoration power, Father, that we can be made whole even in the midst of suffering. And all it takes is a moment of your presence being spilled out. A sliver of your power can restore our hearts, Father. Remind us, to come to you and repent and say, God, I'm sorry I didn't trust you. And I see now the way that you are working in my midst, in my challenges, in my struggle. And I trust that you are good. It is not my job to know why, but rather to reflect on how I can walk closer to you how I can call upon your name in the struggle and be restored. Father, I pray for this church that you will make us people of faith to trust the words that you have said, the things that you have spoken over every heart in this place, Father. Allow us not just to say the words, but to walk with you. And in our mourning, Father, in our suffering, in the struggle, give us hearts to see one another, not as sinners or broken people, but as loved children of God. That we will love one another well. That we will seek restoration in broken relationships that we will seek your presence and your wisdom in all things and that we don't pursue it by our own might but by your power in us. We pray this all in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.